in their own special way. Doesn't mean that you should make a wish for them to go away. Look at all the ways they treat you, how they show you that they can. Welcome to the Cultural Cultivators Podcast by Belay Creative and Cultivate Labs where we explore the diverse and dynamic worlds of Filipino-American culture. In each episode, we delve into various aspects of film culture and speak with athletes, leaders, artists, and creators who are shaping and pushing the boundaries of their respective fields. And today's episode was recorded by Camper Snap Sessions in Southern California. Shout out to Emmanuel. Follow us on all social media at Balai Creative or Cultural.Cultivators. Cultivators with a K. Joy Regalano is a writer-actor comedian based in Los Angeles who wrote on the animated show Monsters at Work on Disney+. Previously, she also wrote on Jelly, Ben, and Pogo, a PBS kids show starring Filipino-American siblings, and Kung Fu Panda Dragon Knight, which is on Netflix. She was also recently nominated for an Emmy for her writing on Sesame Street's Word of the Day series. Check out the concept album for her Asian American comedy musical, Supportive White Parents, now available on all streaming platforms. In this conversation, Joy explains to us the psychology behind creating content for children. And then I think writing for kids is inherently being of service. We're teaching the next generation how to be in this world. But yeah, Sesame, every year they kind of have a different theme or different objectives. And some years it's like, we want to create a kinder generation. And one year it was, well, we want to like talk more about like diversity and inclusion and equity and having a fair world. So I really love the idea of like introducing these concepts at a young age and being able to like show them how the world is, but then also show them how the world could be. Also in this conversation, Joy informs us on the importance of having the support of a creative community, how writing her first musical was an essential milestone in her healing journey, and why it's important for artists to have hobbies. You can find Joy on Instagram at Joy Regalano, spelled J-O-Y-R-E-G-U-L-L-A-N-O. We've known each other for almost a decade, actually more than a decade now, 2011. I can't believe it's 2024. It's really old right now. Anyways, so I've been fangirling over you and stalking your career for probably more than a decade. From the time we met at Bindlesif Studio to now you killing it in Hollywood. And so I just want to say thank you for coming yeah no thank you for having me it's it's funny you say that because I feel like when I first saw your show your stand-up show I was like oh my gosh like Dave Chappelle endorsed her show she's out there doing it like I was fangirling you so it's really nice to do this and to connect with you in this way yes and I also want to give a quick shout out to Camper Snap Sessions and Emmanuel because without him we wouldn't be literally be here right now and recording this episode but before we get deep into it I want to ask you a question that I ask all my guests and it's what ancestor or anyone who has transitioned on would you like to call into the space and conversation today I love this question 
I'll call a few in, and I don't know if I'm just being a basic Filipino bee, but I'd love to call in Chief Lapu-Lapu, you know, love thinking about his strength and stick-to-itiveness. And all the Babailans of our past and anyone who might be in my ancestry line. And I never met her personally, but my dad said that my great-grandma was a really great storyteller. So I like to think that part of her lives on in me, and so I'd love to call her into the space as well. Yes, Lola String. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> all right, so you told me via email you started the writing career in your school newspaper and then at UC Berkeley with theater and sketch and then you moved back down to LA from the Bay Area and started doing improv and you know classes at UCB so can you tell me what that experience was like as a panai? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, both of my parents are doctors. I thought it was always in the cards for me to be a doctor. I was going to take over my dad's clinic. And my parents had, they actually met on the school newspaper. So like writing for the school newspaper was like, okay, it was like approved. So I was like, okay, writing is an okay thing. Acting, not on the table. I like always liked making people laugh, but I was like, "Ah, I guess not in this life. When I went to UC Berkeley, one of the clubs that was rushing during Club Rush was called Theater Rice. And it was an Asian American theater group. And I think that really encouraged me to explore it as an option. I was like, okay, like other Asians are doing this. And actually a lot of my classmates were engineers and pre-men and stuff like that. So we kind of had this in common of like, okay, maybe this won't be our career but let me explore this but honestly like once I got a taste for it I was like oh this is what I want to do for my whole life this is why the universe put me here and so after I did that club and had that experience then I switched to theater as a major at UC Berkeley and then that was a different experience because the UC Berkeley theater department is not very diverse or at that time it wasn't maybe it is now I don't know but yeah not very many non-white people and then I also tried to take screenwriting there was only one screenwriting class at UC Berkeley and in the early parts of my career I would pitch screenplays where the main character was Filipino and I had teachers who would literally ask me like why why is your character Filipino is there a reason and I'm like now it's such a bizarre question to ask. It's almost like, did I dream that? Like, they really said that, right? And I learned in my UC Berkeley Asian American Studies classes that white is a default and that to be something else has baggage or there's some weird, like, well, it, it's a choice or back then it was. And now, obviously, things have changed a lot, which I'm really grateful for. But yeah, I mean, even when I moved back down to SoCal and I was doing improv and sketch in LA, the various improv and sketch schools, they're not very diverse either. But over the years, I have been able to find like my Asian American, Filipino American tribe within comedy and within theater. Like I host and produce this comedy show called Filipino AF. We've really built a community because before it used to be that there would be one or two Filipinos or one or two Asians per improv class and we didn't know each other. Maybe we'd see each other around the community, but doing these shows and then my friend Will Choi started Asian AF and through doing Asian AF and Filipino AF, we've become friends in a really strong community. So yeah, things have changed for the better and it's really great. I love that. It's so funny you say all that because I feel like you're describing my life in college. Oh, wow. And doing improv UCB in New York. Oh, wow. So I lived in New York for 10 years and all throughout that time I was at Magnet Theater and UCB doing improv and sketch and also was, you know, broadcasting, writing major at SF State. And the same thing happened to me. My college professor wouldn't let me do my final paper on Asian Americans in media because in her white words, there are not enough remarkable Asians in media. And granted, like I graduated a long time ago, (laughs) right? Like 10 years before you did. (laughs) But still, it's like, that's the kind of 
you know, obstacles and challenges we had to face as Asian Americans. Yeah, that screenwriting teacher that I pitched my idea to, one of them, she was like, I was like, I'd like to write something about my parents. And then she was like, well, what about if you did um, folktales? And I'm like, what? Like, why? Like, I don't know. There's nothing wrong with folktales. But I'm like, what's wrong with the real story of my real parents? Like, is it not worthy of a story to you? Like, it's so bizarre. Exactly. And I think that's what kind of went through my head as a really naive college student. Like, we're not enough. I'm not enough. And so for a really long time, I thought, okay, I can't even explore this as a career because... I'm not going to make money for a network or a studio. So, yeah, that's it's so funny how those kinds of people and that kind of messaging get stuck in your head until you decide to build your own table. Yes, yes. Build your own table. And I think also it's so insidious too. like in improv class, you make a joke and you make a reference. I don't know, whatever, like a reference to rice and meat. I don't know, whatever. Eating with a fork and spoon. Anything about that we get. We think it's funny. A non-Filipino audience isn't going to always get it. So then you, you're like, oh, my experience is not relatable, uh, quote unquote. The things that I think are funny are not funny, quote unquote, because nobody else laughed at it. But it was just the wrong audience. Back then, of course, it was a lot of white guys, so they'd always make jokes about uh, Lord of the Rings or Godfather or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, I didn't think that was funny, but for some reason that was the default humor or something like that. And so I think, again, things have changed so much over the years, which I think people are becoming more aware of race theory and these concepts. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness Asian AF and Filipino AF exists now. Because I remember doing improv in New York. And yeah, I was one of, not just the only Asian, but one of the only people of color. Oh my gosh. It was like being another black guy. (laughs) Wow. It was just like, I think one time we were doing, you know, an improv session and someone yelled out, massage parlor. And I was like, it's because I'm Asian and I'm up here. And that totally deflated me. And I let it like get in my head about all these racist MFs are only in the audience. Yeah. And so, yeah, I totally understand and I feel what you're saying. Oh, yeah. And I guess I'll take a moment to shout out that there are and have been like historically Asian American improv and sketch groups throughout the years. You know, of course, Spindle Stiff and Cold Tofu Improv down here in LA, East West Players, Asian American Theater Company. You know, there have totally been people who created pockets before us. So to to honor the people who came before us as well and laid the groundwork. But also in the mainstream improv scene, it, it was very few and far between. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was like Eugene Cordero. Yes. <laughs> it was like, oh my gosh, well, he's on stage. And I wasn't even 100% sure he was Filipino because, <laughs> you know, it, was, uh, it just didn't come up, you know, in, yeah. a, in an improv set. Like, it just, like, wasn't a thing that was going to come up on stage. I was like, oh, okay. Um, I think he's Filipino, but I can't tell. <laughs> and then Renee. Renee oh, yeah, Gube. Renee Gube. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> I remember Eugene and Renee came up to the Bay and taught uh, a little bit of improv. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Yeah. All right. So I want to ask, too, having such a great background in sketch and improv, why do you think it's important to have this collaborative, creative, even experimental environment as a creative and writer? Yeah. um, So so I think the temptation as an artist is to, like, sometimes, like, Uh, hide your art away and like sit in your room and not share with anybody because it's so vulnerable and scary because here we are like creating from our heart and looking at our deepest emotions and putting it on paper and putting it out there is really scary because somebody could be like that's bad or that sucks or not laugh or whatever it is so I think that creating a community 
collaborating, however that looks, whether it's in writing groups or having a writing partner or whatever, I think can encourage you and get you out of your head of like, oh, other people think this is funny. Like other people having the same struggles as I am. And also, you know, it gives you deadlines, it gives you accountability, and you just get to practice trying stuff and not being worried about failing or not worrying about, I got to write what the market wants or I got to write what the audience wants. Like, it's just if you're creating with a bunch of friends and you're with other artists, it just makes things feel so much nicer and happier. And then it's not about the people or the ego. It's just about creating and being in community. Love. <laughs> so let's talk about your work as a writer then and, you know, being in writer's room. So you recently wrote for Monsters at Work and Disney Plus. You also are Emmy nominated writer for writing for Sesame Street's Word of the Day series. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. What is the creative process like writing for kids? You know, as a new mom, I always think about that, like with really understanding what my kid and my child and my son is watching and soaking in. I'm very selective on what he gets to watch right now because he just likes to amplify and also say whatever he's seeing on TV. Yeah, yeah. I think there's maybe a few things that I think about with kids. And one of them is, well, Pixar and Disney do a really good job of not necessarily even making them a different audience. It's just like, oh, a good story for kids is a good story for anyone. If it's clear to kids, it'll be clear to adults, you know, all of those things. And then there's the other part that like, well, they are sort of a different demographic, you know, like they find different things funny. They don't have knowledge of things like war. You know, they don't know that stuff. So you're starting from a different starting place. So there are things that they're just not going to get. And then they also have a different sense of humor depending on what age, of course, but like super young kids, they find physical things very funny and like bigger things. And they've just learned like what is reality, right? So things that are not reality are very funny to them. Like, okay, if you put your shoe on your head, they're like, shoes don't go on your head. Like that is really funny to them. But an adult, you know, maybe slightly less funny. So I think honoring and respecting that they're not stupid. They just have a different POV of the world and different knowledge base. And then I think writing for kids is inherently being of service. We're teaching the next generation how to be in this world. Unfortunately, there's usually not as much money as writing for adults. So usually people who write for kids aren't doing it for the money or to get famous. I do think people who write for kids are generally like just nicer human beings and easier to work with and have more balanced lives because they also might have a family and they're not as worried about like, I don't want to go home to my kids and my wife because I hate them. Like mm. that'd be adult live action. But for kids, like that's not really a thing. They like going home to their families because they're more healthy <laughs> mentally probably. But yeah, Sesame, every year they kind of have a different theme or different objectives. And some years it's like, we want to create a kinder generation. And one year it was, well, we want to like talk more about like diversity and inclusion and equity and having a fair world. So I really love the idea of like introducing these concepts at a young age and being able to like show them how the world is, but then also show them how the world could be. Things like, it's cool to help in the kitchen. It's cool to eat veggies, which it's funny because this is a little bit off topic, but I thought veggies were great. Like I never thought veggies were not great. And I don't know if it's a cultural thing of like Asians and we just eat veggies like it's not a thing that we think is gross. But like white kids think it's gross. What if we just create a world that Asian kids eat veggies and it's like normal, you know, so reflecting our reality, things like that. No, totally. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of which, Sesame Street just introduced last year their first Filipino puppet. Oh, yeah. 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 Filipino and uh, Korean Muppet maybe was the year before that. Yeah. Or, yeah. And it I think his name is TJ. Yeah. And what's funny is Eugene introduced it. 
Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. So shout out to Eugene again. <laughs> yes, yes, they're doing an awesome job at representation over at Sesame. I think they're just incredible, the work that they do. And they're just so ahead of the curve and staying on top of things. It's really incredible what they do. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was amazing to get getting to work in that space. Did you always know you wanted to write for kids? You know, the things that made me want to write for TV were kid stuff. So it was like Fairly Odd Parents and um, Iron Giant were some of my favorite things growing up. And I was like a big Nickelodeon animation kid, I should say, like specifically animation, Pixar movies. I loved all that. So I knew I liked that stuff and that I wouldn't mind writing for that stuff. And then my first Hollywood job, in a way, was interning at Nickelodeon for the show Fairly Odd Parents for production. So I knew I would enjoy it. I think the thing that's tough was learning that there's not as much money in writing for kids. So there is a part of me that's like, well, gosh, if only I could make the same money writing for kids as I do writing for adults. That'd be the only thing. If we could just bridge that gap, I'd write for kids forever. So I didn't intend to get stuck in that world. And I, I don't know if I'm stuck, but that's just where I've been paid as a writer to write in the last few years. But it's been great. And I think that there is a need for it. So I'm happy to be where I am for now. Well, you also got to work on the PBS show Jelly, Ben and Pogo, which I just discovered literally like even before my research on you a month ago. Whoa. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's about Filipino American siblings. That's insane. And so someone that's written predominantly for kids What do you think the impact does culturally when programming is focused on a children's culture and heritage? Oh, that's such a great show. And I love that you brought it up. Yeah. Amazing show. Shout out to everybody who worked on that. But I guess I'll start with the impact when there isn't culturally focused programming. So when there isn't that, I think that you can feel as somebody who's not represented, you start feeling invisible or that you haven't contributed anything to society. Like when you don't read about your people in history books, you're like, okay, like I am not even worth being in this history book. Or the only part I was mentioned in was the Bataan Death March, which my history textbook told us to pronounce Bataan Death March. I was like, that's not how you say that. It's like, am I crazy? It makes you feel crazy. Like, it's just like, no, this is not the history I know. And then I remember my white friends, they'd be like, my great, 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 great grandfather was Johnny Appleseed. And then I'm like, oh, my mom's uncle was a secretary of justice in the Philippines. Yeah. Like my mom's other relative, I forget how she's related, but one of her relatives was the Betsy Ross of the Philippines, like sewed the revolutionary flag. Oh my gosh. And that's cool, but we don't read those names in American history books. So then you start to feel like my family has contributed nothing to society or like I'm invisible and my experiences not only don't matter or are invisible, but they're not even mentioned anywhere. Am I crazy? Like, did this happen? You know, but when there is culturally focused program, when you do have representation, kids feel like, oh, like that person looks like me. I exist. I am normal. I am beautiful. My experiences are worthy of being shown on TV and I am relatable. You know, my stories are relatable enough that somebody greenlit it and somebody is broadcasting it and spent the time to make this like one of the episodes on Jelly Ben and Pogo was about sending a Balik Bayan box. It's like, oh, like I do that too. Oh my gosh, like I'm not alone. Like, wow, there's all these people who are like me. Back when I was a Sesame Street writing fellow, we had some speakers come and talk to us. And we had a speaker that had created Doc McStuffins. It's like really big show for kids. So Doc McStuffins, when that came out, like little boys started saying, can I be a doctor too? Or is it only for girls? So it's so crazy. It just takes one huge show to like even make a little boy think that only girls are doctors. You know what I mean? So it's like a representation. It's so huge. 
Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. I just keep thinking about like when I was a college student and my professor was like, you can't do your final paper on Asian Americans because there's not any remarkable. I wonder if she's alive today because I want her to listen to this podcast and eat her words. Yeah, that's wild to like literally say nobody. Like it's like, okay, what about all the people who like, I don't know, made Buddhism a world religion? You know, yeah. like what about uh, all of the like emperors and like warlords and like any of those? It's Lapa Lapa killed Magellan. What about any of those people? None of them. Well, wait, I guess you said Asian Americans. Asian Americans. But still there was like in media specifically, there was Lucy Liu oh, yeah. and Michelle Yao. Like, yeah, even the stars of old Hollywood, Cecilia Hayakawa and Anna Mae Wong, you know, all of those people that, exactly. that made that's a, such a ludicrous thing to say. Um, and erasure. Exactly. Thank you for bringing that up. And thank you for the work that you do in children's television. I think a lot of people don't understand how much it takes to do children's writing and producing and creating for kids and I love how you frame that as it's an act of service thanks yeah I appreciate that because it is a lot of work because we'd get notes back from curriculum for like any of the shows I'd worked on and it's things I would never even think about oh you can't write grapes in because it's a repeatable behavior and kids can choke on grapes and I'm like oh my gosh I never thought about that but they're so impressionable at that age so there is a responsibility in writing for kids and that's something that we interviewed Josh from Blue's Clues. Oh, yeah. One of our first episodes. And that was the thing that surprised me, too, that there's actually a curriculum and a lot of, you know, children's development research that goes into shows like this. And it, it's very intentional, the things that are, like, put on screen. Totally. Yeah, it's funny. I've written a lot of things. And some of the most fulfilling stuff, like one of the most fulfilling things was getting to be part of the launch of the Korean American Muppet on Sesame. It was like, oh, like even though my demographic doesn't necessarily watch that or they only did because they had kids. It was like, oh, like how fulfilling to be part of expanding the Sesame universe and being more inclusive of more people's experiences. It was so cool. Well, I kind of want to switch gears now because I want to talk about a project that's more closer to home and more dear to your heart. A couple of years ago, you created a comedy musical called Supportive White Parents about an Asian girl who wishes on a shooting star for supportive white parents. What was that inspiration for that musical? Yeah. So, so like I mentioned, both of my parents are doctors and my dad had a clinic. In my mind, I was always going to take over because I put so much pressure in my mind of like, oh my gosh, these clinics are everything my dad's like accomplished here in the United States. Like he had no shoes in the Philippines. You know, he had that typical like background of he grew up in the provinces and put himself through school because he got a scholarship and then came here to the U.S. and made himself a doctor, you know, like that kind of thing. So I was going to be a doctor. And then, like I mentioned, I went to UC Berkeley and changed my mind. And then my parents were really disappointed but meanwhile, all of my white theater classmates, their parents were so supportive. They came to every show. And my parents did come to shows, but it was a different level. My classmates' parents had enrolled them in, like, community theater and, like, acting classes their whole lives. And I felt like I was catching up. And I was so bummed out. I'm like, oh, like, I wish I had had these years that they had. But meanwhile, they wished. They're like, wow, but you have discipline. Like, I wish I knew how to play piano and violin. Like, I wish I did kumon. And I wish that I had done kung fu all these things that you did when you were a kid and so kind of tucked that in the back of my mind of like how interesting you know grass is greener that kind of thing but it wasn't until I came to LA and then I did this show called Trump in Space at Second City Hollywood and the composers of that show started opening my mind of like oh I guess I could write a musical because I'd never written music 
at that point. So I was like, okay, maybe I can collaborate. Speaking of collaboration, like maybe I can write the lyrics and the script and I can ask someone else to write the music. And I had written like really bad high school poetry, which I always say is a sidestep away from humorous lyrics and comedy songs. So I was like, okay, I think I can write lyrics. I think I can make that happen. And so yeah, those composers said yes, Sam and Tony. And so we went back and forth and I took an eight-week class at UCB called Writing a Half-Hour Stage Show. So it started as a half-hour stage show, and I wrote that in class, and then I sent my draft over to the composers, and then they spit me back drafts of each of the songs, and we just started developing it from there, and that was in 2018. So that was almost six years ago now. Wow. Is that crazy? Yeah. And you perform parts of it at Sketchfest, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I put up, like, songs here and there. We've had, like, so many different versions of the show. Last year in the Bay at Bindle Stiff. It wasn't part of SF Sketchfest, but I was already up there for Filipino AF, so I'm like, let me just put this up, and you know, a lot of us were already going to be there. The other thing I forgot to mention was that I had the idea of like, oh, like wishing on a shooting star, that's like, just can't be enough for a musical, and it's like a very clear want. And I, one thing that I love writing is a trope, but like finding a spin on it. So the trope is like, you know, w- wishing on a shooting star or like a wish fulfillment story that like goes a little bit wrong. So I was like, oh, I know I can kind of put this idea in here. And the other thing I want to say is that I almost majored in Asian American studies or minored in it. And I really loved learning about critical race concepts and all those things, ethnic studies. But I didn't find a way that I could write about it or talk about it that would make people listen. Because when I was in college, and I was first learning about it, I was just really angry. And of course, you know, it's really hard to listen to an angry minority, especially an angry female minority. (laughs) I even turned off other Asian Americans. I'm like, how did that happen? You know, I think it's, I think East Asians at that time. I mean, not to throw shade, but you know, especially, especially affluent East Asians, you know, are easy to throw other Asians under the bus. But anyway, besides that, over the years coming to LA, speaking of being a Filipino in the sketch comedy world, I started learning that I could write about race in a funny way and then people did laugh at it and they kept listening to me and they didn't turn it off so I was like okay I think this is the way I can make people listen because like I wasn't given the gift that my Asian American studies professors were of being able to talk about race in a very coherent way like I would always lose my words but in comedy I found a way to present it that made people laugh but then they also saw the truth in it it was also satirical I mean I like to think that it is that it does all those things so yeah I think that is part of what makes supportive white parents feel really fulfilling to me that it's about my personal emotional journey of learning to accept my parents for who they are because um I've just had to accept over the years like they can only give what they were given themselves and so it's been this healing journey along with therapy obviously of like okay like my parents they are supportive in their own way and I've had to find those ways and accept them because here's another thing that blew my mind in my healing journey I learned that wanting my parents to be different actually isn't loving them Wanting somebody to be different is not love. And that's what they wanted for me. And I'm like, oh, wow. So loving my parents means accepting them for who they are, including their limitations and their imperfections. So it has this emotional, personal grounding of like, wow, I really wanted my parents to like love me for who I am, which is one of the main songs. But then also it's like, in a way, my thesis on a bunch of race topics, because I think the discourse of race in America is a lot of white and black, or even Latinx and white, but not really like Asian and white is not really as much in the discourse. So it's like all these ideas I have about like how Asians relate to white people and vice versa. One of the things that I really want to touch on that I think really blends in with the intention of this podcast is this idea of ancestral healing. And this also this idea of generational healing that oftentimes I say this a lot uh, just in my own social media, 
that we are not just our ancestors' dreams, but we are also their healing in the way that we and this generation have the capacity to go to therapy, have the ability to think outside of ourselves and not just be in survival mode, unlike the generations before us that didn't have that possibility. And so when we are actively healing ourselves and the trauma that has been placed on us through colonization or whatever, racism, then we are actually loving our parents and healing them without them even having to do all the hard lifting. And so you saying that is like, wow. Oh, th- that reminds me of Turning Red actually was all about that. Yes. Like, about the daughter healing herself. And then she finds her, spoiler, finds her mom as a young girl in that forest. And like they both heal. Yeah. So yeah. The inner child. Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. I think also as a comedy writer, it's something so genius about putting things like race theory and, you know, generational healing into a musical that's like an easier pill to swallow for folks, especially people who might not be Filipino, you know, and see things in a different way. That's not just, let's just say it white. Yeah, I think one of the things that I loved so much about Iron Giant is that, like, it's actually about jingoism and nativism and, like, fear of the unknown. It's got these really heavy topics, like nuclear war, you know, but it's actually also a story about a boy and his robot. So it's like, oh, this very simple emotional story, but it gets to talk about all these huge themes that are very adult and very, like, complicated and nuanced. So in my work, I strive to find that balance. And again, as a mother, I appreciate that. (laughs) As a Panay finding success in Hollywood, you know, writing for numerous children's shows that are on TV and streaming, being Emmy nominated. And also, I'm going to say this because even though you weren't technically a reoccurring character on Supernatural, you were on Supernatural (laughs) for more than one episode. How many episodes? I guess if we're counting the recaps, I think at least like maybe I was in at least one or two other recaps, maybe. Yeah, see? And so... I feel like you're huge success. So has your creative journey always been supportive of your parents post-graduation? And if they weren't and it wasn't, how did you get through it when they weren't as supportive? They definitely over the years have not been that supportive. But then in the arc of their characters, they've become more supportive, I think, as they've seen a few things like, okay, she's not going to stop doing this. And then, oh, she can make money doing this. Like, okay, she's okay. Like, she's not going to be homeless, I guess. Over time, they've become more supportive. But I think it was like they just didn't know, you know, they just didn't know was an option because they didn't have that option. Like you said, one of my friends She's South Asian or Indian, and she actually spent the time to, like, educate her parents about her slash our world. She's an actor, too. And I always, like, respect that so much. Like, now her parents, like, get it. They, like, have opinions about, like, best actor and the the Oscars and things like that. I'm like, wow. So if if you feel up to the challenge of bringing your parents into your world and, like, teaching them, like, power to you, I think I'm not there yet. But they used to always say stuff like they'd encourage me to go to post back. They would tell me for med school, they would tell me that this is a young person's career. They'd be like, well, what about the next one? You know, maybe you had a good year this year, but what are you going to do when you get old? You know, they would say all that kind of stuff. And that was really, really hard. There was a time where I just 
didn't go home that much. <laughs> I just like didn't talk to them that much. And that was what I needed at that time. Because over the years, I would look up post-bat programs. I'd be like, oh, maybe I should go do that. They'd try to bribe me. They'd be like, well, if you go to post-bat programs, we'll pay your living expenses. And I'm like, oh, money. That's so like, wow, that sounds great. And then I just have to remind myself, you know, go back to your connection to the divine or, or your purpose or however you call it. Like, okay, I don't think that the universe put me here to like be a doctor and that's that's been a hard thing to like accept because the little inner child in me wants to be who my parents wanted me to be you know but as you grow up you learn your parents aren't your god you know like they didn't put you on or they you came through them actually but whoever your creator is or whoever the universe whoever made you they're your ultimate parent i guess so getting some connection to like that's why i was put on this earth actually and like kind of holding on to that during the hard times or like the other connection that i think about a lot as far as purpose like oh like when i get a role some other filipino girl gets to be like wow that person looks like me i can do that or if they watch something i wrote and they relate to it like actually i'm creating for me but i'm also creating for others and i'm being of service in that way like i am writing a story that no one else was ever going to write i have written many scripts about my parents who else was going to write that? Nobody else in my family is a writer. My parents are not writers. So I get to memorialize my parents in that way. So having some connection to like, well, how is my work greater than me, actually? Mm. I just want to cry sometimes <laughs> <laughs> to this podcast. Um, but yeah, 100%. As an artist myself and... You know, my mom, I think her level of success is, is it giving you health benefits? And so for me moving to New York, that was one of the biggest arguments me and my mother ever got into was I was leaving my world behind in the steady nine to five job with health benefits. And I was going to New York to be an actor and I had nothing set up. And so that was the biggest argument we went through. And, you know, she's finally come around her senses. <laughs> But I 100% get that. And I think what really grounded me in New York and to keep going was to look at the bigger picture. And what is it that I'm creating for not just myself and my community, but for future generations? And for me, it's always quality over quantity, right? The one kid, the one Filipino kid in Iowa or Illinois or whatever that doesn't have the access to Filipino community like we do in California gets to see themselves on TV or, or hear their story um, in a movie or see what a Lolo and Lola is in a musical. You know, I think about that one kid, that one person that might be struggling that has a connection to our art. And I think then it's all worth it. And to me, it's not about millions of people paying millions of dollars. It's about, like you said, acts of service. And I think that's what really grounded me as well through all the hard times of, am I going to make it? Am I going to make rent? <laughs> I love that. Oh, and I should also shout out, of course, therapy helped me get through yeah. it. <laughs> you know, uh, self-help books, you know, finding happiness. I mean, I didn't even get what inner peace was when I was a kid. I'm like, what is inner peace? But now I understand like, okay, like it's like finding a sense of worth and purpose that's outside of other people. Like, okay, I am worthy and lovable just because I'm a human being and I am happy because I choose to be happy today and I choose to look at all the things that I have and uh, the abundance of that versus like I'll only be happy if my parents love me or I'll 
only be happy if I am successful or if I make this much money. Like if you keep doing that, you'll find it doesn't really like fill you up, I think. think. <laughs> 100%. It's this unattainable chase for a validation outside yourself. Yeah, I used. I mean, I used to do that. I used to be like, okay, I want to be a paid TV writer, and then my parents will love me, and then I will have enough money to live, and then I'll be okay. And then I got that first TV writing job, and I was like, oh, like this didn't actually solve my problems, and it didn't make me feel worthy, actually. So finding another source of feeling worthy, which is just being fully yourself. The other thing that you made me think of was like sometimes I get caught up in like, well, only certain careers or professions are worthy like only tv writing if you're famous only that makes you worthy or visible or whatever but like thinking about like um, whatever your passion is like for example Marie Kondo she loves cleaning and I bet she never thought that like oh she would become a millionaire or however much money she has and she also is of service she helps so many people bring order and peace to their lives so it's like, okay, like all you have to do is follow your passion, whatever that is. Other people's passion, I don't know, it could be a business and then they make a lot of money and then they can be patrons of the arts and that's how they make their mark on the world. So whatever your purpose is, whatever you were meant to do is what you were meant to do. This deep feeling of I'm bothering people or nobody wants to hear my story or I'm a talentless hack, you know, any of that stuff, like your own ego that perhaps is inherited through trauma has been a struggle for me. You know, I would say I still uh, wrestle with it today and, you know, affirmations and finding spiritual grounding, being in community with people and support groups and books, you know, all of those things I think have helped me move through all that. And then also connecting to being of service and how actually me sharing my stories for others as well. I think we've touched on this a lot in this conversation, but this idea of us being mirrors for others and also people in our lives becoming mirrors for us and seeing ourselves in these people, I think is a beautiful reflection of what's possible and the work that we get to do. And I feel like I'm seeing so much of myself in you. So I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't believe in coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence that we're sitting here today after being fans of each other for almost more than a decade. So I really wanna thank you again for the continued work that we don't get to see that you do on your own. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for all the work you do. And, you know, this is kind of a funny way to look at it, but I'm like thinking about, I forget who that guy was, but there was a guy who got on SNL and then people dug through his Twitter and found like a bunch of like racist, weird tweets. And then he just had to like, didn't even get to be on SNL, had to resign or whatever happened with him. But it's like, oh, if he had just worked on himself, you know, maybe he would have a job now, you know? So it's almost like, obviously there's working on yourself to work on yourself, but working on yourself helps your career too, honestly, you know? So then your future self will thank you so you don't get canceled for saying something stupid or shitty, you know? Because we've all been there. We've all said something stupid or shitty, but 100%, yeah, <laughs> I feel that. But what is is something you wish someone had told you before you started show business there's this obama quote that i always butcher but basically he says when you get caught up in how hard the road is just put your ego aside and keep your head down and focus on the work so in our case the work is representation and like telling people stories and doing good in the world that kind of stuff versus like why aren't I making enough money or when's my next job going to come? You know, like if you're just engaged in the work of like, I'm doing what I need to do every day, then that stuff doesn't matter. Amazing. What's next for you? And if people want to support or come watch Support of White Parents, where can they find that? Yeah, well, we're actually working on doing another reading of Support of White Parents the full length of a few months. So you can stay posted on the Support of White 
parents instagram for that and you can listen to our concept album we have some of our songs on all major streamers spotify album music etc and specifically i have a show coming up filipino af at sf sketch fest so you can go to the filipino af instagram or twitter to find out info on that it's saturday february 3 at uh, marsh main stage at 9 30 p.m okay we're i'm gonna be there oh I'm yay totally okay. gonna be there exciting all right so last question what are you currently geeking over oh what am i currently geeking over wait you first oh gosh you <laughs> have not asked me this question oh man i mean you know, I'm having to do a lot of research for the podcast, so I'm reading multiple people's books. So like Berna Anat, she does this financial book for just people of color. And so I'm trying to get into like investing more and thinking about my family's future and money. So definitely reading her book. Oh, that's uh, I should read that book. Yeah, everyone should read that book. I, I actually uh, speaking of I have been geeking out about like stock market trading because I guess. Oh, yeah, I guess I didn't say this, but you should also have hobbies and a full life. <laughs> like yeah. You're trying to be an artist. If you, all you're doing is trying to be a writer and artist and all you're doing is hustling, then you, then you have nothing to write about. So one of my hobbies, I've been doing ballet. I'm not great at it. It's just a fun hobby. And it's like exercise, you know, and then learning about the stock market, which is very different from writing and acting. So that's fun and money. Is there anything else I've been geeking over? I guess food. I love being inspired to cook something fun. One of the things I cooked recently was like, it was a Thai dish called um, Pad Kaprao. Oh, yeah, It's like yeah. basil and yeah. I, I made love it tofu. that. Yeah, it's so good. And I've never, I've just never made it at home because I didn't grow up with it at home, you know? And it's like, oh, this is actually not that hard. So I love doing that kind of stuff. Oh, I learned how to make Din Tai Fung copycat green beans. Have you been to Din Tai Fung? I love their green beans. Oh my gosh. They're so, and they're so expensive. So I like learned how to make them. And then I learned how to make uh, Din, Din Tai Fung copycat cucumber salad. So that's been what I've been taking to potlucks and stuff. <laughs> Awesome. Okay. I'm so excited to find out what's coming up for you and your musical. And I'm wishing you all the good energy from the universe to get this like out there into the world so more people can see it, especially Filipinos. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. If anyone happens to have, you know, $2 million to help send us to off Broadway, that would be amazing. There you, you know, go. Hit us up. <laughs> Hit Joy up. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Joy. Have a great day. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I love Joy and I loved our conversation today. And something that really stuck with me is how she puts a spotlight on going beyond just personal success in the arts. It's all about thinking about the impact your art can have on communities and the generations coming up. And nowadays, there's this crazy pressure to hit big numbers, especially if you come from Asian American households. But when we shift our focus from just chasing success stats to actually making a real impact, I think it changes the game. Like I always say, quality over quantity. I also love how Joy talks about acts of service through art and stresses it's not about the millions of people or even the big bucks. It's about making a difference and doing something meaningful with your work. And you know what? That kind of growth mindset gives artists a sense of purpose. It also takes off this unnecessary burden and helps us stay strong when times get tough. Like when our parents are still sending us medical school brochures and our Christmas cards. 
Her talk really drives home the idea that art has this incredible power to transform and connect people in a deep way. And it's not just about the numbers. It's about creating something bigger than ourselves, something that truly matters. You can find Joy and her work at Linktree slash supportive white parents. Also, she'll be performing at the San Francisco Sketch Fest at the Marsh Theater on Saturday, February 3rd. Cultural Cultivators is hosted by me, Nicole Saliver. Today's episode was recorded by Camper Snap Sessions. Stay in touch on our new Instagram page at cultural.cultivators, cultivators with a K. Or you can find me at Kindred Kapwa. This podcast is co-produced by John Reyes, Kindred Kapwa, and Balai Creative, and is a product of Cultivate Labs. But love me for who I am, appreciate me for me. Although actors aren't useful to society, I'm your daughter, can't you see? Love me, love me. I wish I had supportive white parents. It's not like it'll come true anyway. <laughs>